Are you ready to vibe? You're listening to Creepy Vibes Only. Lewis and I are prepared. Perfect. So, like I said before, you rudely interrupted me. <laughs> uh, I'm going to read an expert of the story, the research. So it goes as, the next night was my breaking point. Around midnight, I woke up to see a truly horrifying sight. Sight. I was staring face to face with a creature with a black hoodie, a dark blue mask, with no nose or mouth staring down at me. The thing that scared me the most was that it had no eyes, just empty black sockets. I grabbed the camera from the nearby mantle and took a picture. Immediately after taking the shot, the creature lung at me and tried to claw open my chest to get to my lungs. I stopped it by kicking it in the face. As I ran out of my room, I grabbed my wallet. I would need the money. I ran out of my brother's house into the night I eventually ended up in the woods near Edwin's house and tripped on a rock. I fell unconscious and woke up in the hospital. So. <laughs> Jesus. This is a story of Eyeless Jack, also known as EJ, Jack, or the Creature. <laughs> EJ Jesus. is a stalker and serial killer who breaks into a person's home to steal things, specifically their organs. <laughs> and of course, this is a creepy pasta. Nice. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> uh, so for those that don't know what a creepy pasta is, these are horror legends that I've basically been copying and pasting all over the internet. Um and Eyeless Jack is one of the most popular mainstream creepy pastas. Um, there is up there. So, I will go through the actual story. Um, and yeah, so when I was telling Emma about, I was doing the story, I, had, I was reading it, and it was super, super interesting, and, like, the same night, Milo, at, like, 3 a.m., woke up and was, like, growling at the hallway. Um, Milo. so I regretted my choices after that. <laughs> So this is the story of Eyeless Jack. After his house forecloses, Mitch, who is the protagonist, moves in with his brother Edwin. A week after moving in, he hears a loud rustling sound outside of his window. But Mitch doesn't pay much attention to it, and he thinks it's just a raccoon or something, and goes back to bed. The following morning, he mentions the rustling to Edwin, who agrees with him that it must have been a raccoon or a squirrel or something. So the next night, Mitch again hears a rustling outside of his window, but this time around, his window opens and there's a loud thump. So he jumps up in his bed, turns on the light, but can't see anything. So he just assumed that he was sleeping and he imagined it. Following morning, when he leaves his bedroom, his brother Edwin just stares at him with a look of horror and shock. Mitch has a large gash under his left eye socket. 
so Edwin rushes Mitch to the hospital to get a check tip. The doctors think Mitch hurt himself while he was sleeping. And don't think much of the eye gash, but there's one thing that keeps them completely shocked. It seems that overnight, Mitch has lost his left kidney. What the fuck? <laughs> Upon checking him out, the doctors saw a clean incision with, su- with sutures. And when they further examined it, noticed that the kidney was gone. There's no Jesus. medical concern. So there's no... The way the kidney was removed and he was closed back up, it was done flawlessly. Like he had been in a hospital and it was a normal procedure. After checking him out completely, there's no medical concern to keep him at the, the hospital. So they told Mitch that he could go home. But this is where the story escalates. Mitch is I'm sorry, again... it escalates after his fucking kidney <laughs> stolen? That wasn't the peak? Nope. There's okay, more. Great. <laughs> Love that for us. Mitch is attacked again by Eyelash Jack. Saw EJ, and he decided to fight back. So this is where that excerpt, I will review it again. So around midnight, Mitch woke up to a truly horrifying sight. He was staring face to face with a creature with a black hoodie, dark blue mask with no nose or mouth staring down at him. The thing that scared Mitch the most was that it had no eyes, just empty black sockets. So he grabbed a camera, took a picture, but then at that point, EJ lunged at him and tried to claw open his chest to get to his lungs this time. Yeah, what the fuck? Why would like why would you be like one second attacker? <laughs> I need to capture you on film. Like why would your priority be like, oh, maybe I need to get something to defend myself, not like my fucking Polaroid. No, he wants to document it. Oh my god. That so get your priority. Able... Sorry, oh my god. <laughs> So Mitch was able to get EJ off of him by kicking EJ in the face. And then he ran out of the house, grabbed his wallet on the way out, and ran straight into the woods near Edwin's house where he tripped on a rock and fell unconscious where he woke up in the in the hospital. Also, listen, don't fucking read like don't run to a forest. <laughs> That's not smart. Run to other people who can help you. Don't run to a forest, please. I like how, like, wanted up your being about this. Oh, I, I know it's not real, but, like... <laughs> it's so it's good. Like, it's like in a horror movie when they just, like, make terrible choices and you're like, don't do that. But don't, 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 don't! And they just get... <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, sorry. The so good God. news, Mitch isn't hurt. Bad news, Edwin is dead. So Mitch, Mitch's parents bring him back to the house to collect his things where he finds Edwin's corpse. When he finds his brother's corpse, the thing is, finding his brother's corpse was not the creepiest thing that he found in that house. Next to the corpse, there is Mitch, Mitch's stolen kidney covered in a blank, black substance with a bite taken out of it. And that is the story of Eyeless Jack. What the fuck? <laughs> so, Eyeless Jack is a non-canon. Um, Non-canon? Not canon, yes, sorry. <laughs> <okay>. um, 
But uh, so the creator, La Mishi Mishi, who also created Sally Williams, Come Play With Me, uh, they have been attributed to have created the original story of Eilish Jack. So this isn't what I just read from, is a non-canon from Eilish Jack. Um, the original story is about Jack Nichols. Jack Nichols is a college student who befriends the wrong people. So Jack becomes friends with a peer named Jenny and a small group of her friends. However, when it's really too late, Jack discovers that the friends and Jenny are actually a part of a demon-worshipping cult. <laughs> and by the time that he figures it out, he ends up being sacrificed to the demon that they revere. The cult members, they kill Jack by pouring tar into his eyes, thus blinding him and killing him. Then Jack's corpse is possessed and in turn he murders Jenny and the rest of the cult members by slashing their throats and disemboweling them. Jack then takes their kidneys. So this is how Eilish Jack came to be. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. It's gross. I just, so like the thing killed his brother and was like, one sec, I need to have a quick snack and not myself when I haven't eaten like the Snickers commercial. So <laughs> for what I think, he like, still had the kidney with him when he tried to kill Mitch. And when Mitch ran away, he's like, fine, I'll just take a snack out of this, out of your old kidney, and I'll just go kill your brother. Yeah, also, why didn't he, like, warn his, like, wait, why didn't his brother hear this going on in the room, I wonder? Also, like, I don't know, like, I would try to warn my housemate slash sibling slash whoever. It's like everyone for themselves. You got something trying to get to your lungs. Fucking go. Okay, Ryan. Ryan, if I'm staying with you guys and a fucking demon's after <laughs> me, I will. I will warn you. We'll get Maya out of the house. We'll figure it out. I will not run away <laughs> without saying something. <laughs> like, could you imagine? Like, you're staying with Jody, and you're like, "Good luck." <laughs> like, no. I would scream, but I wouldn't like stop and wait. But at least you'd be like, hey, by the way, there's something in the fucking house trying to kill us. <laughs> I would scream it. I would check <laughs> to make sure they heard it. You wouldn't go help her? Well, not if it's coming after me. I'm running. Oh my god. I gotta go. Stephanie, if the, if the, if the zombies rise, I'm not bringing you with me. <laughs> <laughs> You're on your own. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. His poor brother abandoned to die. Yeah, well, you know, should have woken up. Should I take it? Uh, whatever. How do you call them? Those like pills? Oh Tell my her. god. <laughs> well, that was my creepy story. Yeah, it really it triggered me, apparently. Yeah, I saw it. It's very nice. Big reaction. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Great. Um, my story is not a creepypasta. Um, I've been having some, like, reticence to touch uh, the son of Sam because, like, there are still survivors of that who are alive today. Mm -hmm. But um, in order to sate my true crime uh, interest, 
Uh, I'm going to talk to you guys about the Villisca Axe Murder House because <gasps> our first true crime story. First time true crime. Yay! Bow, 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 bow. I hope that's not the right <laughs> tone. Um, so this murder happened in the town of Villisca, Iowa, back in like the early 1900s. So uh, to give some context about the setting of this, I want to talk to you guys about the town itself first. Uh, shout out to VillisciaIowa.com, uh, which seems to be like very centric around this crime, uh, which remains unsolved to this day. Okay. Because uh, I've basically gotten all the information. Well, I have, not basically, I have quite literally gotten all the information from this story on this uh, from this website. So back in the early 1900s, uh, Villisca, it's like in the Midwest, United States, if you're not familiar with the United States, uh, it was a relatively like back for that time, like it was a big enough town, like there are around 2,500 residents. It was described as flourishing. Uh, businesses were doing well, like there was a busy several main streets. Um, trains went through all the time, all day, every day. Uh, and Villisca is supposed to mean a uh, pretty place or pleasant view. So like a very like idyllic small town, like think star, like whatever that town is in the Gilmore Girls. I should know this. I watched that series. <laughs> Anyways, think that, but 1912. Okay. Um, one sec, I have to sneeze. Oh. Cute elevator music. <laughs> yeah, honestly. Okay, yeah. Um, so in 1912, the town built the only publicly funded armory in the entire state. So that brought in a lot of businesses and wealth, and the town is like really doing well. Uh, unfortunately, though, um, all of these like really positive things and all of this success became overshadowed by the events that took place on June 10th, 1912. Okay. Because on this date, eight horrific murders took place. The Moore family and two overnight guests were found in their beds. And this is a direct quote from the website, Little known to his residents, that was the possibility that the town was named not after a pretty place, but for the Indian word Waliska, which means evil spirit. Mm. Um, again, let me know if I mispronounced that. And it should be a native or indigenous word. It's just what the website says itself. Um, as mentioned, the murders have never been solved. And this is what the town is most known for. So before I talk about the actual crime itself, let's talk a little bit about the um, people who were murdered. So um, Josiah B. Moore was the patriarch of the family. He was a very successful businessman and um, he was married to Sarah Montgomery um, and they had four children, uh, Herman, Catherine, Boyd and Paul. Uh, Josiah had lived in Villisca for 13 years and worked at the 
Jones store for nine of those years. Um, he was very well known in the town. He was like one of the most successful people in the town. So um, his death would have had like a marked impact on the other people there. Uh, his wife, Sarah, was born in Knox County in 1873 uh, in Illinois and moved to Iowa with her parents, Mr. And Mrs. John Montgomery and her sister, Mary, um, in about 19, or sorry, 1894. Um when she died, she was 39 years old and was like an active member of the Presbyterian church. And she actually led the children's day exercises the day before her death, which was June 9th. Um, one of the suspects was actually her brother-in-law. So that's a potential. Uh, and there was like a lot of bad blood between them, uh, which made him a suspect, but he was eventually cleared. Um, the other victims include their children. Uh, Herman, who was the eldest of the children, was 11 at the time of his death. Um, it was said that he was often, like, by his dad's side. Uh, and he was, like, very much a daddy's boy. So he was really close to his dad. Um, his little sister, Catherine, was 10 when she died. Um, and her two friends, who were also unfortunately murdered, were Lena and Ina. Um and stayed the night, which is why they died as well. And then Boyd and Paul were the youngest of the siblings. They were seven and five. Uh, and unfortunately, yeah, the Stillinger sisters, uh, Lena and Ina May, were the daughters of Joseph and Sarah Stillinger. Um, Lena was 12 when she died. Um, and she was actually the only victim who apparently tried to fight off the attacker. Mm. Yeah. And then Ina May uh, was the other murdered uh, victim. Okay. So basically, here's what happened. I'm going to read uh, kind of paraphrased from the website itself. Mm -hmm. So this kind of t starts on June 9th and goes until the murder of uh, the family and their friends on the 10th of June. 1912. So on the 9th, uh, Lena, and Isla, Isla, sorry, Lena and Ina Stillinger uh, left their home for church early that Sunday morning. They had planned on having dinner with their grandma after the morning service, uh, spending afternoon with her, and then going home to spend the night after the Children's Day exercises included, which I guess are like something the church would have put on. Mm -hmm. However, they were instead invited uh, by Catherine Moore to spend night at the Moore home instead. So before they left for the exercises, Mr. Moore, so the father who was killed, uh, placed a call to the Stillinger home to ask permission for the girls to stay overnight. Uh, their older sister, Blanche, told Mr. Moore that her parents were both outdoors, but she would pass the message along to them. So the Children's Day program at the Presbyterian Church was an annual event, and it started at about 8 p.m. on the Sunday, on the 9th, and according to witnesses, Sarah Moore coordinated the exercises. So this was the mom who was unfortunately murdered. Um, all the Moore children, as well as the Stillinger girls participated. And then Josiah Moore, the father, um, like, kind of like sat in on the congregation. The program itself ended at 930. So the family, along with the Stillinger sisters, uh, walked home from the church, getting home sometime between uh, 945 and 10 p.m. The following morning, at approximately 5 a.m., 
Mary Peckham, who lived next door to the Moors, stepped outside in her yard to start hanging laundry. At around seven, she realized that not only had the Moors not been outside, nor the chores began, but that the house itself seemed what she described as unusually still. So between 7 and 8 a.m., she approached the house and knocked on the door, but she received no response. Uh, she then began to try to open the door, only to find it was locked from the inside. So after letting out the Moors chickens, what a good neighbor, mm -hmm. um, Mary called Josiah's brother Ross, setting in place what's described as one of the most mismanaged murder investigations to ever be undertaken. Oh, no. So the crime itself. So based on her testimony and those who like saw everyone at the Children's Day exercise, it is believed that sometime between midnight and 5 a.m., the murderer entered the home of J.B. Moore and brutally murdered everyone who was inside the house with an axe. Oh. Upon arriving at the home of his brother, Ross looked from the bedroom window and tried to see, and then knocked on the door and shouted, like just basically trying to get someone's attention in the house. Yeah. One um, that obviously didn't work, he found his keys and found uh, that one did open the door. And while, and Mrs. Peckham followed him onto the porch like the neighbor, she didn't enter the parlor. Uh, Ross went no farther than the room of the parlor. When he opened uh, the bedroom door, he saw that there were two bodies were on the bed and there were dark stains on their bedclothes. He returned immediately to the porch and told Mrs. Peckham, the neighbor, to call the sheriff. Two, the two bodies in the room downstairs were Lena Stillinger, age 12, and her sister Ina, age 8, who were there as guests. Oh, I know. It's horrible. So the remaining members of the family were found in the upstairs bedrooms by the city marshal Hank Horton, who then got there shortly after. Everyone in the house had been brutally murdered as their skulls were crushed as they slept. Um, and again, Josiah Moore, who is 43, Sarah Montgomery, his wife, Moore, uh, was 39. Herman Moore, his son, was 11. Catherine Moore was nine. Boyd Moore was seven. And Paul Moore was five. So as mentioned, uh, the crime scene was like not well managed. And the a lot like the law enforcement basically lost control of it quickly as neighbors and curious onlookers converged on the house. Um, I remember. OK, this story is familiar now because I so remember long. I don't know where I, I heard of this, but they had mentioned how like people would just come into the house to come and see and they would take things and mm -hmm. like, I, I don't get it. Like why, why, what is there that you would want to see? These are people that you knew and loved. Honestly. So like, Ugh. well, on that vein, like they basically estimate up to a hundred people like went and like gallivanted through the house before the national guard arrived at oh around noon. God. So remember, like, this is around, like, what, 9 a.m., 8 a.m.? So, like, three hours mm -hmm. passed of people just, like, venturing through. God only knows, like, who else was there and, like, if the murderer came back. And they basically had to cordon off the area and secure the home. Because, like, the sheriff's office watched it so badly. So the only known facts of the crime scene are as follows. They know that eight people were bludgeoned to death. They presume it was an axe that was left at the crime scene. And it appeared everyone had been asleep at the time of the murders, except for the one girl who tried to fight her attacker off. Um, the doctors estimate the time of death was somewhere a little bit after midnight. Curtains were drawn over all the windows in the house, except for two, which didn't have curtains. 
Um, and those windows were actually covered with clothing belonged to the Moors. Oh, wow. Um, all of the victims' faces were covered with their bedclothes after they were killed. Um, a kerosene lamp was found at the foot of the bed of Josiah and Sarah. The chimney was off and the wick had been turned back. The chimney was found under the dresser. I don't understand what that means. Yeah. It's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> oh, sure the um, maybe the, oh, the chimney for the lamp itself. So, like, the thing that goes on top of the lamp. Oh, okay. <laughs> How the fuck do you put a chimney? Anyways, we're dumb. Um, a similar lamp was found at the foot of the bed of the Stillinger girls, and the chimney was also off. Okay. Um, the axe was found in the room occupied by the Stillinger girls. It was bloody, but an attempt had been made to wipe it off. And the axe did belong to Josiah Moore, who was the father who was murdered. Mm-hmm. The ceilings in the parents' bedroom and in the children's room showed gouge marks, which they assumed were made by like the upswing of the axe. Yeah. Um, a piece of a keychain was found on the floor in the downstairs bedroom. They did discover as well a pan of bloody water at the kitchen table and a plate of uneaten food. Who stops to like, I hope that wasn't the murderer because that's gross. Yeah. Um, All the doors were locked, which to me is like, did they leave through a window or did they like lock the door behind them? Right? Mm, I would go with lock the door behind them. Can you? Oh yeah, that's right. I don't know how the locks work. I was thinking like bolts. Um, Yeah, it depends on... Or if they have a key, or if they found a key. Yeah. Oh, that's and true. And they took it with them. This is why I couldn't be a detective. <laughs> I wouldn't solve it. I would just be like, oh, if they knew them. Um, anyways, the bodies of Lena and Ina were found in the downstairs bedroom off the parlor. Ina was sleeping closest to the wall with Lena on her right side, and there was a gray coat over her face. Um, Lena, according to the inquest testimony of Dr. F.S. Williams, who was like one of the doctors attending, she was laid as though she had kicked out one foot of her bed sideways with one hand up under the pillow on her right side. Half sideways, not clear over, but just by a little. Apparently, she'd been stuck in the head and squirmed down right into the bed, perhaps one third of the way. Hmm. Um, also, the coroner knows where there was a slab of bacon on the floor of the downstairs bedroom lying near the axe. And it weighed about two pounds. Hmm is random mm-hmm. um linquist also noticed that one of sarah's shoes the mom's shoes which he found on josiah's side of the bed the shoe was found on its side however it had blood inside it as well as under it which is weird to me he assumed that the shoe had been upright when josiah was first struck and that blood ran off the bed into the shoe and that the killer later returned to the bed to inflict additional blows and subsequently knocked the shoe over yeah um they also believe that like if these crimes had happened today, it would have been solved very easily. Mm-hmm. But um, at the time of the murder, like between how like mismanaged the crime scene was, and then because like back then fingerprinting was like a brand new venture, and at that point, like it was 1912, DNA testing was unimaginable. Like, yeah, it would never it would never have thought like it would be it. Um. And a local druggist, like someone who worked at a pharmacist, but had like was smart enough to enter the crime scene, and he was like, "Oh, like I'll come with my camera to like document things." Mm-hmm. They fucking threw him out. Oh, 
You leave no. everybody else in, but not him? Like, come on. No. Like, honestly. So here are some suspect, or sorry. Um, let's talk about the inquest itself first. So okay. on June 11th, uh, the county coroner, Dr. Lindquist, arrived at the scene of the crime. Uh, several, or sorry, June 10. So yeah, after the discovery of the murders. And then after viewing the crime scene himself, he later met with um, John Henry, a.k.a. Hank Horton, who was a night watchman and sheriff, Orrin Jackson, and basically to like go over all the evidence and info they had gone over and collected. Um, he called the members of the coroner's jury later in the afternoon, but it was several hours before they actually entered the home itself to view the bodies. And after 10 p.m., before he and the county attorney uh, finally gave anyone permission to like actually remove the bodies the fire station had been set up as a temporary morgue for this purpose and it was close to 2 a.m before all the bodies were actually transported hmm. um on june 11th itself the coroner's jury did then convene for the inquest and 14 members of uh, 14 witnesses were called to testify so the first witness was Mary Peckham. So she was the next door neighbor. And she was the, as mentioned, she was the first person to notice that like something was really wrong. Um, so she testified that she did live next door to the family and had not seen them, uh, and had seen them, sorry, before they left for church that Sunday evening. Um, she went to bed at around 8 p.m. and didn't see the family return because she was asleep. She went on to say she did not hear any noises from that house during the night. Um, okay. and then she explained that she had like, you know, she'd been out between five and 6am hanging her laundry. And then it was around seven that like, it was unusual for their house to be as still as it was, which like makes sense if you have a bunch of kids, like little kids get up to the crack of dawn. So after, as she mentioned earlier, like after trying to like wake up the family, she let their chickens out and checked on their other livestock. And then seeing that they livestock were still tied. She then called the brother-in-law to see like whether anything had happened in the family that would have like kind of like explained why they were gone. Um, and then of course, after speaking to her, like the brother's wife, Ross's wife, Jesse, um, she then saw Ed Sully, one of Josiah's employees, go into the barn to feed the horses. And then Josiah's brother Ross arrived to open the door. She then explained that she stayed on the porch while he, like, while Ross went inside and looked around. And then after seeing two bodies and bloodstained sheets, Ross immediately came back to the porch where she was waiting and was like, oh my God, something awful's happened. Please call the sheriff. Um, she also testified that the doors had been locked with a key and that no key was in the lock on the inside of the door. Hmm. So the second witness is Ed Sully. So Ed is the one who, like, she saw arrive to feed like the livestock. So Ed was employed by Josiah um, at his implement dealership and Ed just came to tend to the animals. So he opened the store and received a phone call from Ross, Josiah's brother, uh, seemingly after he would have contacted, been contacted by the neighbor. So Ross was like, hey, like, do you know where Josiah is? Um, and then just saw, he was like, no, like I, I haven't seen him. Uh, he then also received a call from Mary Peckham, the neighbor, to see if Josiah was at the store. And she told him that the livestock needed tending. 
he left the store and went to the house where he fed the horses. And then uh, after he got back to the store, he got another call telling him to bring the marshal to the house quickly. Seemingly after like the bodies were discovered. Mm-hmm. So according to his testimony, um, the brother and the neighbor had entered the house before he returned with the marshal where they arrived, all re-entered together. And then they saw blood on the bed in the downstairs bedroom. Uh, he then left the house. Uh, while waiting outside the home, he was met by someone named uh, by Harry Moore. And according to him, when Marshall Horton came out of the house, his comment was that there is somebody dead or they have been killed in every bed. And at the time the house was locked, the marshal was left to call the coroner and the sheriff and Celia, and he then returned to the store to call the John Deere people in Omaha to alert them of the news. Um, he did return to the house after making the call to Omaha, but he did not go back in the home. Um, when he was asked if there were any like potential enemies of uh, Mr. Moore, he admitted that he uh, that Josiah had mentioned a brother-in-law that could have been a threat. Um, and he's quoted saying, "He says I got a brother-in-law that don't like me. Said he would even get. He said he would get even with me sometime. So, the brother-in-law that he would have been referring to was Sam Moyer. Uh, okay. He denied having any other information regarding us to like anyone else who would want to murder the family." Okay. Um. Yeah, like I won't go through all the witness testimonies because, like, there's literally a million of them. Uh huh. But like, everyone kind of points towards a few different suspects. Okay. So more um, than just Sam. Yeah. So there's a few people who they think could have done it. Um. There was like no shortage, basically, okay. of suspect so there's a man named uh william blackie mansfield uh and they basically thought he was paid by frank jones to commit the more murders uh which is bizarre mm-hmm. uh who was there so like frank- a, a reason why they, they wanted them then well so josiah moore worked for frank jones at the jones store mm-hmm. and then he worked there for nine years until he left to make his own company in 1908 Okay. This made Jones so mad that Moore had left his employee and actually managed to take the very lucrative John Deere franchise with him. So John Deere, okay. is like, as you might know, that like builds machines to help maintain yeah. farms, like land, and agriculture. Mm-hmm. There's also a rumor that Moore had an affair with Jones's daughter in like Donna, um, which would have also like contributed to the animosity. Yeah. Um, and Detective Wilson of the Burns Detective Agency openly accused Frank Jones and his son of hiring William Mansfield to kill Joe Moore. But neither him nor his son-in-law were ever arrested, and they both, like, to their graves, denied any connection to the murders. Okay. So, William, a.k.a. Blackie Mansfield, they suspect could have been paid to kill him. Okay. Um, but he managed to convince a grand jury to open an investigation in 1916. Or sorry, Wilkerson managed to convince a grand jury to open an investigation in 1916. Mm-hmm. And Mansfield was arrested and brought to Montgomery County from Kansas City. Payroll records, however, basically gave him an alibi that placed him in Illinois at the time of the Villisca murders. So he was okay. then released for lack of evidence and then won a lawsuit he brought against Wilkerson and was awarded $2,225. Hmm. which would be a lot more money today. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, Wilkerson believed that the pressure from Jones resulted not only in Mansfield's release, but also in the subsequent arrest and trial of a Reverend Kelly. Oh. So another prime suspect in the murders was Reverend George Kelly, who was a traveling preacher. So he and his wife settled in Macedonia, Iowa in 1912 after some, like after a bunch of years of preaching throughout the Midwest. In 1917, so five years later, he was arrested and charged with one of the victims of the Velisca Axe murders. He was invited to attend the Children's Day exercises the day before at that Presbyterian church. And his presence in Velisca on the night of the murders and his subsequent departure in the early morning hours of June 10th made him like a prime suspect. Okay. So he ended up confessing, but it's suspected his um, confession was given under duress and torture. Okay. And it's described as a mockery of law enforcement practices at the time and then was withdrawn before his trial even began. Uh, his first trial resulted in a hung jury and he was finally acquitted by the second trial. According okay. to information presented by Kelly and Tammy Rendell, Kelly moved to Kansas City, Connecticut, and finally New York City. Um, but the remaining like years of his life in his resting place are a mystery. Um, it's also suspected. I mean, I'm not going to go through every single mm-hmm. suspect because there's a ton. And I think that like this is something that people would definitely find interesting enough to read up on. But there's a man named Henry Lee Moore who was a serial killer and was actively at work during the time of the murders. So there was a strong possibility that a serial killer was actually at work and the Wilkerson's case against Mansfield was actually the suggested the same. Um, so uh, Henry Moore was actually convicted of the murders of his mother and his maternal grandfather in Columbia, Missouri, just months after the murders in Villisca. Um, and the Moore families were killed just as brutally as if, uh, I'm sorry, this Moore and the same Moores in Villisca were killed the mm-hmm. same way. So with an ax in both cases. Oh, really? Yeah. And so, it was close? Uh, close yeah. enough. Like he killed them in Missouri, which is also mid the Midwest states. Okay. And then to go on to um, Iowa would not be a big jump. Like definitely you could, you would get there within a period of months if you were like crossing the United States killing okay. people. Right. Yeah. So they definitely think he was an option there. Um, and of course, like it's now thought that this house is like very haunted. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Because of like the brutal, brutal events that took place there. And like, you can go there for tours now. Um, it has been renovated since, but like they've tried to keep it very true to the uh, like period. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, you can go there if you want to go for a tour. I mean, it's a bit morbid. Uh, but they I do... don't like those. Yeah, like, I, what, I know. What are it's you? Yeah. Like you're not, it's almost like you're celebrating it. Yeah. Like I, like I find that's the same thing with like people who go for tours of like the, um, I can't remember the name of the house, the ex, the girl ex murderer. Yeah. Lizzie Borden, the Borden house. Yeah. Yeah. Like they do like overnight tours and stuff. I don't know. I think it's exploitative. Yeah. It's not necessary. Yeah. Like you can do like ghost tours, but like ghost tours are 
like the ones I've done, you add or like you add one spit one spot, but it's not like focusing on a tragedy. Yeah. It's more like focusing on like the like ghost stories and the legends and that kind of stuff. Like it's not I, I don't like the ones where like these people have been murdered here. Come and see. Like, no, it's gross. Speaking of exploitative, Zach Baggins mm -hmm. describes this as the most intense case of good versus evil I've ever come across. Of course. <laughs> Zach Baggins. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's tons of like videos about this on um, YouTube. Bailey Sarian has a really good video about it. It's, uh, it was 108 years ago, right? So, or 109 I, like, now. I wonder. I have a hard time thinking because like if you're going after one person you kill that one person but to kill like the children and yeah. the friends like that's others or you had a vendetta against the whole family a hundred percent and that's where like, like well that's where like i actually really like think that that serial killer makes sense Mm -hmm. The no. isn't he the one though that was like a huge liar? Let me see. Let me go. Maybe. Because there's one serial killer where they arrested him and he's like, oh, I've killed a hundred of people and they like caught him. Oh, I'm thinking of Harry Lee Lucas. Yeah, no, this is Henry Moore. Okay. Yeah, so Henry Lee Lucas, uh, they did interviews with him and he claimed just like he claimed like hundreds of murders but there's points where like to test him um and i saw a documentary i think it was on netflix where they were like oh like did you kill so and so and it was like in china and he's like yeah i did it too and he's like how did you go there and he's like oh i drove and that's where they're like uh no <laughs> can't drive from the states to china <laughs> yeah honestly um but yeah he would be someone that would be interesting to talk about He's a big 100%. liar. Like, still killed some people, but not the amount that he claimed. Yeah, well, more... thing to do. I mean, it makes sense if you're a serial killer, like, lying is, yeah. like, whatever at that point, right? Like, but yeah. And, like, I feel bad, because, like, at this point, we're never gonna know who did it. Mm -mm. So, like, their killer will never, like, likely have been brought to justice. Unless it was that guy that was a serial killer. Yeah. Which would make sense. Especially to kill yeah. the kids. Yeah, you've got to be, like, I mean, you got to be pretty fucked up to kill another human, but you have to be, like, especially yeah. fucked up to, like, kill a kid. You know? A huge, like, the whole family. Yeah, like... Because you got to have been against, against the fodder. Like, you would wait for either that person to be alone, or you would kill the couple. Like, you wouldn't do it when, like, the house is completely full. Yeah. To me, it would make sense. Not speaking I mean, of experience. I was gonna say, I don't know that you and I have like at least a thought process, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. No. Yeah, gross. Mm -hmm. Anyways, guys, hope you enjoyed that. Yeah, <laughs> that was a bummer, but all. okay. Yeah. I mean, true crime isn't really a jovial thing. No. It was a creepy episode, though. That's right. Well, guys, thanks for vibing with us. Remember to mm -hmm. like and subscribe. This and, is our um, last episode of our marathon. Yeah, Oops. not ever. I did scare stuff me a little bit. <laughs> but yeah. Perfect timing. Yeah. My various flat weights are finally wearing off. 
Oh, okay. There you go. <laughs> Thanks, guys. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Creepy Vibes Only. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook by searching for Creepy Vibes Only Podcast. We absolutely appreciate and love your support, and you can do so by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribing to the show wherever you listen. If you wish to get in touch with us, you can send us an email at cvopodcast at gmail.com or leave us a voice message on our podcast's page on Anchor. We will talk to you in two weeks. Bye!